We're in a series looking at the paradoxes of Christian faith. And um, what's a paradox? Well, it's two statements that appear to be contradictory or intention, that, but that can be resolved. And mostly they're resolved by, in our experience by living them out. And uh, today we're looking at a very important paradox uh, and a paradox that is uh, very, very troubling to many people's faith. And it may be troubling to your faith. You may be somebody who is exploring Christianity and not so sure about it. And, and this may be one of the things that makes you not so sure about Christianity. Or perhaps you've had conversations with others about this paradox. And, uh, and this will hopefully help you understand and resolve it. So what is the paradox? Well, this very popular, very well-known uh, Sunday school story of the destruction of Jericho raises this paradox, doesn't it? And the paradox is God says he is love. God commands us to love others, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. And God orders his people as they enter Canaan to commit ethnic cleansing and genocide and to destroy everyone and everything in this city. So look at verse 21 of chapter 6 of Joshua. This is how the story ends. They walk around the, the city seven times. They shout. The walls fall down. The Israelites go in, and they devoted. Now, that, that's a technical Hebrew term to say uh, you devote an offering to God, which is you burn it up completely. It's, there's nothing held back. It is absolutely destroyed. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and labradoodles. I mean, everything went. Love? genocide. Have you ever been bothered by that? Have friends you've talked to ever been bothered by that? Well, I want to encourage you, it's not a new problem. Sometimes, uh, and maybe uh, sometimes we come across these things and we think, oh, this is terrible. No one's ever thought of this before. This, this completely rocks my faith. And, and I have to apologize. If you're somebody who's never been bothered by this until this morning, and now you're terribly bothered, and you're not sure how you can possibly be a Christian still, I'm sorry. Uh, but this is part of our faith. This is, and it's not a new problem. Um, Marcion uh, lived from, he was a, a theologian, Marth, Marcion of Sinope, lived from 80, 80 to AD 150. So like within a generation of Jesus dying, uh, Marcion came to believe, that, well, the way he resolved this paradox was Marcion said, well, essentially there were, we find two gods in the Bible. Uh, we find the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of destruction, and we find the God of the New Testament, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of love. And what Marcion did was he went through the Bible and he basically chopped out all the bits 
that, can, that taught us about the, the angry, vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament and said, well, that's a, that's a primitive document. We don't want any of that. And, and we'll just focus on the God of love. Now, it's a, in the history of the church, that approach has been quite common. It's also wrapped up with uh, underlying anti-Semitism because whose book do you think contains the God of anger and wrath? Well, it's those pesky Jews. So it gets a little complicated, but that's quite a common approach, right? Well, and and uh, and maybe it's um, an approach you and I attempted towards. I mean, if I asked you to stick your hand up and said, "Who here is a committed Marcionite?" How many would stick your hands up? But if I said to you, "How many of you prefer reading the gospel stories about Jesus?" versus the Old Testament stories about genocide? How many would prefer the gospel stories about Jesus to the Old Testament? Yeah, look at all that. So, and in fact, when I think about my preaching and teaching, I don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, um, verse 21. I spend a lot of time about Jesus telling us to love everyone and not a lot of time about God telling us to destroy everyone. Funny that. And sometimes what that means is in, we're, we're functional Marcionites. Even though we're not intellectually committed Marcionites, we, we just functionally live as though that's all very kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You just don't, don't notice that. Come to Jesus and just... There's some problems with that approach, though, aren't there? I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a few. Maybe just one to start with. The problem with that approach is Jesus, that pesky Jew, had as his Bible this difficult Bible with all these paradoxical instructions and uh, problematic verses about God. This was Jesus' Bible. And when you read the lovely stories about Jesus, you see that he quotes this Bible all the time. This is the Word of God. This is... This is what guided Jesus. This is how the Father spoke to Jesus. It was this te these texts, including what some commentators call these texts of terror, that actually shaped Jesus' self-consciousness and God-consciousness and his mission and his identity. And Jesus himself, as a Jewish believer, is utterly incomprehensible without understanding and embracing the Old Testament. So we've got a problem, right? Like You could go, well... This is how, this is, this is to put the problem, put a fine point on the problem. We could say, well, Jesus, you worship this God of the Old Testament, but that God of the Old Testament doesn't really fit with our cultural, our contemporary cultural presuppositions. And so we think we know more about God than you, Jesus. And we certainly know more about the Bible than you, so we'll just resolve the paradox by dismissing it. Uh, and that's not so helpful. That's not so helpful. Um, but it's common, right? Um, Richard, and it's, it's common in our contemporary culture. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, put it this way. Now, Richard Dawkins, he's not a man known for his humility. Um, and I think he, he would be quite comfortable to say he... I'm guessing here, but I suspect he wouldn't be unhappy to say that he knows more about God than Jesus. 
Um, and this is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantil, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Do you think he feels strongly about this? Well, um, as a Jew whose uh, family lost everything in the Holocaust, including many of them lost their lives, and where in my life probably there hasn't been a week that has gone by, or and certainly when I was younger, a day that went by when the shadow of the Shoah, the shadow of the Holocaust, did not cast a deep pall over my whole experience growing up and my family, uh, comments that God might be genocidal are deeply problematic to my faith. And I don't want to underestimate or trivialize the challenge of this paradox. Now, you may find it deeply uncomfortable to be challenged to think about this, and if, and if you would rather not think about it, that's okay. But, but if we're to have a f the faith of Jesus in this world, then we've got to grapple with this stuff. We can't take our brains out of gear. It's there. Let's think about it. So uh, Joshua is a, um, is a place, uh, well, the, the question is this, right? Um, how do we worship the God of Joshua? Um, that's a great challenge, isn't it? Because the God of Joshua is the God of Jesus. And, uh, and you have to embrace it all. You see, one of the problems with picking and choosing which bits of the Bible we like and which we don't like, it works well for us here, we think. So we go, well, I don't like these homicidal, genocidal, racist, megalomaniac bits of the Old Testament, so I'll chop those out. But who then decides what bits of the Bible you like and you don't like? So the history is full of people who chop out bits of the Bible that they don't like and misinterpret and twist it. So, um, yeah, Germany in the 1920s and 30s was full of Christian leaders and theologians and churches where they were quite happy to read the Bible as uh, through the lens of national socialism as a way of uh, supporting um, the Nazi party and supporting the eradication over time of Jewish people. They just picked bits of the Bible that supported their particular, you know, um, machinery of hate and murder. And, and we're quite, they could reconcile it. So it's a very great danger. Now, we're, we're doing it for what are good reasons. Uh, we think they did it and had terrible outcomes. But the, the problem is the same. You can't pick and choose. You've got to let the Bible, you've got to grapple with the Bible on its own terms and allow it to contradict yourself or make you feel deeply uncomfortable to challenge your presuppositions and your most favored cultural shibboleths and, and predispositions, and so uh, that's what we're trying to do, and that's what we're going to do here. Uh, the question is, how can we worship the God of Joshua? And you might say, well, why put it this way? Well, I actually think this passage, if we can get our heads around Jericho and the conquest of the Canaanites in Joshua, and if we can find a way to live with this paradox, I think we've got a way to live with the Old Testament uh, as a whole, um, with God and some of the, the challenges we find there with God. So that's why we're looking at this. And um, 
I'm going to try and I'm going to give you ten, uh, ten clues or reasons or ways that we can make sense of this intellectually, so that we can live with this paradox. And uh, I see some of you looking at your phones. Uh, there is an app, uh, a church app that has the sermon notes in it and space for you to take notes. You can go back and look later. This is also being recorded, so if we go through too quickly and you want to get back and go, oh, what was, what was this? Or you want to talk more, um, all of that will be available online. So how do we live with Joshua? Uh, well, the first thing is, like all good trilogies or series, this has a prequel. You, and, and you've got to understand the prequel, right? Uh, you can't just understand this and make sense of this if you jump in just at the destruction of Jericho. Okay, there's a prequel. And, and the prequel frames and understands this. And uh, what is the prequel? Well, uh, Genesis 15, God says this. So this is the backstory, and the backstory goes back 400 years. Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. This is to Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the Amorites, a subgroup of the Canaanites, of whom they're the inheritance, the inhabitants of the promised land. God's people are coming back into Canaan from being in exile in Egypt. God gave Abraham the promise that this would be his land. He said, but hang on, buddy, you've got to wait 400 years before you come into the land. And why do you have to wait 400 years? Because God is very, very patient. And he says the, the sins of the Canaanites, their evil and injustice, has not yet been piled up to the point at which judgment was deserved or even necessary. Bronze Age Canaanite culture was indescribably violent unbelievably violent, where child sacrifice was commonly practiced, where rape was uh, and, and violence was just a matter of course. When Bronze Age, when archaeologists look at the level of violence within communities, and you can tell this by looking at the bones, the archaeological record, you can see how many bones in any uh, of that era show signs of violent death, right, by by hacking or crushing of the skull and so on, any archaeologist would say this was a violent, violent, violent culture. And uh, for some reason, God said, I'm going to wait 400 years before I put an end to this evil. I'm going to give it time. I'm going to give it time. Now, what's interesting is that uh, in those 400 years... God's people paid the price for God's patience, didn't they? So they suffered. They went into slavery. They lost their children. They suffered so that God could have mercy on the Canaanites in his infinite patience. God's people, the Israelites, were subjected to 400 years being homeless, suffering nomads. 
So understand the prequel. This is not just God waking up one morning and going, uh, Israelites, good, Canaanites, bad. Let's just go in and massacre them. There's more to it than that. Uh, the second thing, the clue or hint is, and isn't this true, even when we read this, we all have a universal longing for justice and for mercy. And, and, and that's true for all of us. Like, we all want justice. We all want mercy. Here's the problem, however. When we read historic accounts of judgment like this, most of us instinctively side with the person being punished because we don't understand the full context. And we go with the underdogs and we go, oh, how could God possibly have done that? Right? But, but we actually, if we know the full story and you know the prequel, maybe we go, yeah, that, that was right. Because that kind of evil must be punished. We all want justice. Um, we need justice. And we... Um, Dostoevsky, uh, the Russian writer, in his, um, his character Ivan Karamazov write, states, without God and without a future life, why, in that case, everything is allowed. Dostoevsky says, if there's no God who will punish the perpetrators and hold the world to account, anything goes. And we know we can't live in that world. We don't want that world so if we, if we want God to hold perpetrators to account, maybe it looks a little bit like Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. And that goes, the subcategory of that is if there is a God, we want this God to hold the world to account. Who wants a God? Who wants a God who turns a blind eye to evil? What do you call a ruler? Or a judge who lets evil go unpunished. You call them corrupt, weak, terrible. So we want, if there is a God, we, we say, God, you've got to do this. Um, of course, there's a paradox there because I really want God to bring justice but actually I really want grace and mercy at the same time. And somehow I want God to figure out how the two can work. And actually the way most of us resolve that is we say, God, I want, I want justice for those evil people out there, but I want grace and mercy for me and the people I love. <laughs> Don't we do that? We go, yes. Mercy for the Allies, justice for the Germans. Really? I mean, look, I'm no fan of the Germans in World War II, but, you know, the Allies committed war crimes. Firebombing of Dresden and Hamburg. Horrendous, horrendous policy of flattening German cities. Why weren't they ever held to account? When we pray for God's justice against the genocidal... Um, Holocaust-inflicting Germans. Aren't we also praying for justice against Churchill and the Allied Command and the Americans who were quite happy to, to incinerate hundreds of thousands of German citizens? Why, why wouldn't we pray for that as well? Because well, we want mercy for people like us. <laughs> That's hard, isn't it? That's the paradox, right? Mercy and justice. It's a challenge.
But God has to do that. And, and that goes, fourthly, to the, the evil of the Canaanites. Y we can't diminish that. We can't diminish that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 12, God, God makes it really explicit. Um, uh, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Like it's a terrible, terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Um, now, um, of course, if you're thinking about this at the moment, you might say to me, Ah, Mark, so God's strategy to punish those who commit child sacrifice is to kill all the children. Interesting thought. Hold that thought. The Canaanites are very evil. Um, the next thing is, uh, the next hint is God had rules of war. Uh, and you might say, what are these? Uh, well, uh, God's rules of war were that the Israelites were to treat the Canaanites differently, the inhabitants of the land, differently to any of the other surrounding nations. God did not give his people a carte blanche to commit ethnic cleansing on anyone who was not Israelite. He limited it. So outside of Canaan, outside of coming in and taking possession of the promised land, God's people were always to pursue peace first rather than destruction. It was the total destruction clause is reserved specifically to the judgment on the Canaanites. And God specifically tells the Israelites not to use the conquest as a model for how they're to treat other nations. So it's limited, right? Uh, the cultural context for these passages. So this occurred in time and space in history, and the archaeologists will tell us, and the historians will tell us. By the way, this this argument, the next this argument, the next few points comes from a, a historian called Paul Copen, who's written a really wonderful book called "Is God a Moral Monster?" Very good book. Is God a moral monster? And uh, Copen and the historians will tell us. That, in, that for Bronze Age people, this was how war was waged between tribes. You didn't let anyone survive. It was small-scale warfare, brutal, hand-to-hand, -hand, and you would massacre everyone of fighting age, and you might keep the children as slaves. You might keep the women to breed with them as, uh, as slaves, as sex slaves, but basically you would massacre everybody that you possibly could. Um, there's a, another theologian called Chris Wright who says, in a fallen world where struggle for land involves war, and if the only kind of war at the time was the kind described in the Old Testament texts, this was the way it had to be. God is accommodating to the context. Now, you may or may not find that convincing. It's an argument. Uh, which is closely linked to the seventh point, the lesser of two evils argument. Um, and you say, well, what is that? It would appear that the greater evil that God was seeking to avoid was his people, the Israelites, coming into the land of Canaan, not killing the inhabitants, 
And over time, assimilating with them, adopting their practices, becoming like them, and by so doing, thwarting God's whole plan to rescue and redeem and save the whole world. So think about it. We live in a world now because of this trajectory God has had humanity on since, the, since God's people came into the promised land. We've been on a trajectory of humanizing the world. We now live in a culture shaped by God's teaching way back in Deuteronomy that, for example, child sacrifice is unthinkable, that women and men are completely equal and to be treated in the same way, that everyone is to be respected, irrespective of intellectual ability and ethnicity, because we're made in the image of God. And there's this whole trajectory of saving the world, of humanizing cre- the world and bringing God's redemption to creation and, and all that, all that could have been derailed if God's people had become like the Canaanites. Maybe that's an answer. Maybe that's part of the way of thinking about it. Copen uh, then says, and, and I find these last few, actually, if you've been relatively unconvinced even by the cumulative force here, these last two carry some weight. And that is uh, what one argument is that um, the language is uh, hyperbolic. There's hyperbole here. When it says kill all the people and they killed all the people, well, you know, that's actually very difficult to do. Like even the Germans with all their industrial scale slaughter could not kill all the Jews in Europe. Like it's actually very hard to do. And it's very hard to do when you've got Bronze Age uh, in, um, um, weapons. So uh, we use language like this ourselves. So someone might say, um, I watch Netflix all the time. I, clearly I don't. I mean, I'm here not watching Netflix at the moment. Um, but you might say, I watch Netflix all the time. Or you could say, oh, I spend all my time sitting in coffee shops, drinking coffee, talking to people. Well, uh, and you'd understand what I mean if I said I spend all my time in coffee shops talking to people. You wouldn't think literally... 24-7, that's all I do. And so there is an argument that that is the kind of language that is used here, the destruction of Jericho. Um, that's the eighth point. And I think it is pretty convincing. The ninth point is this. The cities, according to Copen, when you think about Jericho, we, we, we think of Jericho as a great city like, I don't know, Sydney. And you go, ah, oh, imagine the slaughter of every man, woman, and children in a modern city, right? But actually, it would appear, according to the historians, that cities like Jericho were more like garrisons or military installations. They were military outposts, and uh, that's very significant. Now, military outposts mean there's actually not a lot of women and children there. That's, that's, that's the place where, where the troops are stationed to protect that bit of the land. Now, we know there was at least one woman there in the city of Jericho. Who was that? Rahab the prostitute. Okay, so that's very common in military garrisons. You have sex workers, but you don't have families. You don't have the kind of community. It's not like coming in and massacring Roselle. It, it would appear that that would be the case. Again, this is the argument from Copen. And then um, the final point is the translation of the Hebrew numbers in the text can be tricky. Uh, 
Our translators don't tell us that, but there's the, uh, the Hebrew word elef, which is commonly rendered thousand, can also mean unit or squad without specifying the exact number. And so the numbers of people destroyed in these accounts could be significantly smaller than we would normally associate with genocide or ethnic cleansing. In fact, Copen argues Jericho was a small settlement, probably 100 or fewer soldiers. And before you go, hang on, that makes no sense. It says thousands. Think about how small it was. It was so small that the soldiers could walk around it seven times in one day. That's pretty small. Bunch of soldiers in all their military gear walking around, drums and shofars, and seven times. It's small. I don't know. Did you find that helpful? Hmm. There we go. Byron. Why did the walls fall down? It's a bit off topic. Why? Well, because it would have been hard for them to get in without that happening. <laughs> Look, I don't know. The answer is there are people who have tried to come up with all sorts of reasons. Um, they probably weren't particularly thick walls. There wasn't the... Anyway, that's, that is... I can, we'll take that offline. Short answer, God. <laughs> could have been the resonant frequency of the, the Trump, you know, the walking around and the mud. It could have been an earthquake... Who knows? All sorts of stuff, theories have been advanced. So what do we learn from all of this, dear friends? Well, the question is this, really. So what? You go, great. I came to church. Mark made me feel really uncomfortable about the whole Christian God thing. Then he gave long, 10 long, somewhat unconvincing points to try and convince me it was all okay. How is this going to help you tomorrow? How is this going to help me when I go to work tomorrow? How is this going to help me get through the week? Yep. I don't know. It's just, I don't know, man. Well, let's pray. No, this. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, well, I, this, is, this, is, this is what I think. That it, it makes us realize that, that God is a God of justice but he's also a God of tremendous compassion and mercy. And uh, we can't, we, we, we have to grapple with both. And a God of justice is a terrible thing, only more terrible than a God who doesn't bring justice. But it's a terrible thing, justice. Because who, who here would stand if God exposed all our motives and our inclinations and our potential? Who would stand? You see, we find it really easy to think of, well, God doesn't like Hitler and God doesn't like pedophiles and he's going to judge them. But, that, you know, when, when Jesus confronted the people who were going to stone uh, the woman caught in adultery... What did he say to them? You know, who of you hasn't sinned? You go cast the first stone. So this is the problem. Like, 
we we must have a God who judges, but but also we must have a God who's merciful. And and how do we how do we do this? Well, um, here's one Peter. Here's a New Testament. So what? Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The Bible says, and our hearts resonate with it, that judgment is coming. There is this this judgment that we saw on the Canaanites is actually going to be, it's God's job. And the Bible is unashamed about it to, to bring that kind of judgment on the whole world. And we want that. But we also don't want that. And the Bible says, guess what? The good news is the reason judgment hasn't come already is because God wants to give everyone an opportunity to find him. And to be spared. Well, how does that happen? Um, you see, our problem with God is that he's damned if he judges and he's damned if he doesn't. So what do we do? Well, uh, his patience, uh, we want judgment mostly for others and we want mercy mostly for ourselves and we, uh, those we love. His patience is meaningless without eventual judgment. If he just puts up with evil forever, Meaningless. But his judgment is merciless without extreme patience. So what's the resolution? What's the resolution? Well, let me tell you, the resolution of this paradox is an even deeper paradox, is an even deeper mystery. Because the deepest mystery that heals this is the mystery of God judging an innocent person. The only person upon whom the destroying, utter destruction, fire, the only person, the only truly innocent person upon whom the Holocaust of God's judgment fell was who? Jesus. So this is how the paradox of justice and mercy is resolved. That God says, I know I've got to judge the world, but if I judge the world, they're all going to be destroyed. But I want to have mercy on the world, but I can't just overlook their sins. So how am I going to do it? Well, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come into the world as the one truly innocent person. And in a mystery that defies, actually defies full comprehension, God says, as the one innocent person, he in his own being will pour his judgment out onto himself. The fire of God's judgment will fall upon himself. And he'll say, all my wrath and anger at human sin and evil will be poured onto Jesus. In fact, the Bible says Jesus became sin for us. The sin of the Canaanites, the child sacrifices, the sins of the, of the Holocaust inflicting Nazi Germans, your sin, my sin, my pettiness, my potential for evil, my wickedness, everything in me and in you and in this world, that gets heaped onto Jesus and God judges it on Jesus and in Jesus. And the fire of God's judgment falls on him. That's what a Holocaust is, on the only truly innocent person ever. There's the judgment. And then he says to a world, he says, if you want to be spared from the being judged for your own sin. Here's the deal. You can trust Jesus to die and be punished in your place. How so? By faith. 
grabbing onto Jesus, crying out in mercy and saying, I want justice, but it'll kill me. I need mercy, but I don't know how you're going to do it. But Jesus, your justice and mercy meet there. So I will cling on to you, Jesus, by faith. And here's a bit of how it works. We've all seen uh, with these bushfires. If there's a bushfire coming towards you, what's the safest place to be? On, not there? <laughs> well, if you can't get out, the safest place is to be in a wide area that has been burnt already because fire can't burn the same ground twice. And the heart of the gospel is the fire of God's judgment and the wonder of his mercy have fallen on Jesus. And on that cross, there is a massive, potentially limitless space of burnt ground where people like you and me and the Canaanites and the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the pedophiles and the petty Roselle Balmain people who whinge and gossip and complain and are petty just like all of us, where all of us can come and there is a wide, safe place for you and I to come and stand and be spared. And, to, and the, the deal is this, Jesus receives the justice so that we receive the mercy. Jesus receives the justice, we receive the mercy, and somehow God's love and destruction are brought together in Jesus. And the paradox is made livable, I, 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 not finally comprehensible, but livable because of that. And that's the best news in the world. And now our job is to stand on that burnt ground full of gratitude and wonder and awe at what God has done for us and call other people over to it and say, come, here's life. Here's the only place to really stand. Here's where you'll get everything that you want from God, justice and mercy in a way that won't kill you but will give you life forever. And there's an urgency to it, though, because the... The part of this is, if you don't stand on the burnt ground made safe for you by Jesus, you stand on your own. And you've got to give an account of yourself to God and let his justice fall on you. And then who can stand? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this uh, difficult, difficult, challenging paradox. Thank you that you love us and that in a way that stretches our brains but actually makes sense, you have resolved this paradox in your son Jesus and help each of us in this room today to stand confidently full of faith on the ground that was burnt on Calvary 2,000 years ago and then make us a community who are winsomely, passionately, urgently inviting all those we love and care about to come and join us, to come and join us safe, safe under the wings of Jesus. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.